Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Hello once again and welcome to the December edition of State of Distressed Debt, part of the FIC Focus podcast series, where we focus on U.S. stress, distressed, and bankruptcy markets. Uh, it is December 9th. I am your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me once again to explore the state of play are litigation analyst Nagisa Baluku and senior distress analyst Phil Brundell, each of Bloomberg Intelligence. In addition, this month we're pleased to bring to you Nagisa's conversation with Mark Shapiro, partner and chairman of the Financial Restructuring and Insolvency Group over at Chairman and Sterling uh, as they dig deep into the FTX weeds. Uh, and what I would say is if you're interested in the company or crypto uh, or what looks to be a really intriguing bankruptcy process, that's going to be a conversation you're not going to want to miss. Uh, but first, Phil, over to you. You know what? I, I mean, I really don't know what to say at this point. It seems that you can't keep a bad market down. Uh, you know, so much attention here is being focused on the Fed putting cherry pounds on everyone's stocking, uh, as opposed to what looks like maybe a deteriorating fundamentals backdrop. Uh, you know, so we've got high yields certainly staying bid, and we got a second straight month of gains in November. Uh, what's been the state of play over there in distressed? And furthermore, I know you were looking for better seasonals here, so maybe it's not so surprising to you, but. Uh, is this sort of in keeping with your thoughts in terms of maybe an elongated bankruptcy cycle or anything that's happened uh, in the last week or two that's changed your mind? I know. Yeah, no, it's it's been kind of following the pattern that we've laid out uh, after we tested the uh, distress supply highs in September. Uh, we're coming back. It's it, it appears to us that we're range bound between a distress ratio of like, say, five to 15 percent. Um, and, you know, as I've pointed out numerous times prior, is that uh, distress cycles usually peter out when the distress uh, ratio reaches levels above 25%. And, you know, as high as we've seen it as high as 86% of the high yield index. Um, so <laughs> that's, that's even, it's almost hard to fathom, right? I mean, I mean, particularly because, uh, I mean, in this environment where you've got treasuries, can you imagine 86% of the high yield market today trading at a thousand basis points plus? That would, that would be uh, pretty frightening. Be impressive. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think that's that's what we saw in 2008, the great financial crisis. And clearly we don't have that here. No matter how bad crypto gets, it seems to, you know, I, as I quipped in my monthly piece, it, it seems to produce more schadenfreude than systemic uh, crisis. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting this month was distressed actually posted another negative month. It was the ninth losing month out of the 11 that we saw. Uh, we've only seen that prior in 2008. Uh, you know, most of the time high yield and distress moves together, but I guess high yield actually saw a positive November. We did not witness that in, in distressed and now we are down 27 percent year to date Oof. uh there's yeah, only I mean, that's been... an interesting bifurcation right i mean it's just uh, i mean obviously there was a bit of a duration bid in high yield certainly in the double b space because of where treasuries were going uh, but to, to your point i mean just on carry alone right i mean it's really interesting because you're you're basically making almost a point a month uh, just on the yield side in distress. So really interesting that they sort of managed to to sort of seed ground and maybe, you know, investors were sort of just differentiating across the universe. Yeah, we our, our companies, you know, I, I think what we're going to continue to see is that uh, with these this higher level of interest rates that uh, companies are going to continue to see that, you know, flow down to their bottom line. Uh, and get pinched, um, you know, by these higher rates, and likely more than a pinch. And uh, but you know, as as you pointed out, it does seem like the strong seasonals are kicking into effect. And then you know, I've I've also argued that these high nominal yields that high yield investors really haven't seen, you know, on a sustained basis for a while. Um, if they see them pause for a little bit. Um, that's that's typical when asset managers, you know, your traditional 
high yield mutual fund is going to say, this is where I can really make a killing if I step in here and, you know, buy paper above, you know, you're seeing, you know, good, good companies, nine to 12%. That's, uh, you know, just having worked at a high yield mutual fund that, that that's generally, uh, you know, not seen. So, uh, even in front of high inflation. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the good question there, though, would be, you know, I mean, obviously, there's a difference between sort of like whatever your investment horizon is and the mark to market uh, mechanic, which is certainly prevalent in high yield space. So I, I guess, you know, given that maybe we're in sort of this elongated sort of distress cycle, if you're printing sort of that 9, 10, 11, 12 percent coupon, yeah, maybe that's great if you can hold to maturity. Uh, do you think there's still some reluctance? I know it's a conversation that we certainly had with some of our guests in the past. Uh, do you, are you kind of like thinking that those look compelling on a, a buy and hold standpoint? Or are you saying, hey, listen, it, you get enough kind of juice in that lemon where you can kind of ride the wave? Yeah, That's I think metaphors. It, yeah, no, I, I you know, look, I, I, I it's interesting because our, our signal that, you know, you should probably step out. I think that got triggered back in May. And then if you got out, then you actually uh, spared yourself some losses because it, it is lower. The total return index is lower, at least in 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 distress. Um, I don't think even even now, I would say uh, high yield investors should be wary, uh, just understanding that most of the deals here were done in, you know, times when you could get a lot of leverage and they they're also the rates were incredibly low and so um you know there, there there's probably still more price uh, pain ahead uh especially you know as distress becomes more systemic we really haven't seen a massive panic and uh you know it, it's as tensions grow in the financial system I, it wouldn't surprise me especially you know the results from you know this slowdown that we're you know, clearly, at least uh, we're seeing companies laying off in 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 higher numbers. So, uh, yeah, I, I I I think maybe we're going to get. It's, I, I'm going to stick with the technicals. The technicals tell me that we're probably good through um, at least spring. You know, maybe maybe uh, we start turning in the second quarter. All right. So something to keep an eye out for. And, and obviously we'll continue to follow that. But uh, now seems like a pretty good opportunity to uh, transition here. Uh, and Nagisa, I want to bring in your conversation here with Mark Shapiro, because FTX clearly <laughs> top of mind for a lot of people, uh, not least, as uh, Phil noted, as a bit of schadenfreude or rubbernecking or whatever you want to call it. So let's turn to that. In this December edition of State of Distress Dead podcast, we're very happy to have here Mark Shapira, who is a partner and chairman of the Financial Restructuring and Insolvency Group at Sherman and Sterling. Perhaps of particular importance to this conversation, Mark also spent 12 years in his invest- as an investment banker and head of restructuring at Barclays and Lehman Brothers. Uh, today, we'll be talking about FTX from the perspective of bankruptcy and insolvency law. We'll also draw some parallels to Lehman's past struggles and explore what some of FTX's go-forward options may be. We hope to provide a fresh take on a topic that certainly hasn't been suffering for attention. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, pleasure to be here. So I understand you have been working with one of the clients impacted by the FTX collapse. Can you tell us what so far has been unique about these Chapter 11 cases? Yeah, well, I mean, there's obviously been no shortage of articles uh, having been written about what's going on. But but I would say that um, the FTX cases, I think, are unique uh, for a few reasons. One, uh, there's been a complete lack of transparency so far in the cases. I mean, obviously, you've seen um, the the hearings that you know occurred on the first day of the case. Very little information could be provided because uh, the the team that's now been put in place, John Ray and others that have been brought in, are just trying to get their arms around what's going on there. And um, he obviously made a statement that you know he's never seen anything so un- you know uncoordinated and so 
uh, lacking in disciplines and lacking in compliance. And so as a result of all of that, they're just trying to figure out what, what are the assets, what are the liabilities, what's been going on there, who's been doing what to whom. Um, and I think that that's an unusual situation for a chapter 11. You normally see companies that are filing with a pretty clear view on what the assets are, maybe not completely on the liability side, because those, those some, sometimes uh, can over time change. Um, but here you don't even have a schedule of who the largest creditors are. Um, they've left those out. One, they've left them out because I think um, a number of them are large customers who probably didn't want their names put out there because people would be worried about what would happen to those parties, given the fact that there so many of their assets were caught up in FTX. And then secondly, you just have a general lack of information uh, that they've been able to provide uh, so far in the case. And so that's a, that's a unique uh, symptom of FTX. Um, the, other, the other thing that's so interesting about FTX is that it's going to lead to a number of novel questions that, hasn't, that haven't yet been litigated in bankruptcy, because this will be the largest and most complex crypto bankruptcy that's happened so far. Um, and I think um, similar to Celsius, you're going to have the question of customer deposits, whether in fact people who gave monies as customers to Alameda or FTX, are they customers? And if so, is that property of the state or not property of the state? That's being litigated in Celsius. They may, we may see a decision coming out in the next week based on some recent reports. But even there, the fact that Celsius may, the fact that the judge in Celsius may rule may not be completely dispositive in the FTX case because they have a different service agreement. And based on what we've looked at, it looks like the customers have stronger rights in this case than they do in the Celsius case. So we'll see, we'll see how that plays out. But that's, that's going to be an important legal question that will need to be addressed. Um, second, um, I've had a number of people ask me, well, do you think when this is all said and done, the companies will be the subject of, of a, a subcon, um, so known as subcon or substantive consolidation? And that's where companies are put together, essentially, for purposes of distribution of, of recoveries and where the assets and liabilities are, are melded together amongst multiple companies. That's another very, very um, interesting question here because you're gonna have some companies that are US-based, some companies that are non-US-based, typically, and some non-debtors, right? You have one company out of the Bahamas that's in joint provisional liquidation. Um, so typically the, tip, the basic black letter law in bankruptcy is that only debtors are put together in a substantive consolidation, not debtors and non-debtors. It's very rare for a non-debtor to be part of that. And then second, where you have a foreign creditor, a far, sorry, a foreign company, um, it's going to be more difficult. So I, I expect that you're not going to see a subcon with the joint provisional liquidation company. I expect you're not going to see subcon with, for example, Japan, FTX Japan and things like that. Um, so that'll be a set of a set of issues that will have to get addressed down the road. And then third, and I think this is going to be very, very interesting, and most people haven't been talking about this yet, but I think it will get talked about in the not too distant future, is those people who have had transfers in and out of these entities, the question is, will they be sued and, and for what? So for example, if you received a payment from FTX within 90 days of the bankruptcy and you were unsecured, they may try to come after you for a preference payment. Well, then the question is, does 546E of the bankruptcy code protect you? Because 546E is a safe harbor for certain kinds of transactions, principally in the derivatives world, but also in the securities world. So for example, a settlement payment, what's a quote, a settlement payment, a margin payment um, is, uh, under securities contracts, all of those are protected typically in a chapter 11 case from attack as a fraudulent conveyance or preference. Here, it's not so clear exactly how you're going to characterize the transactions, particularly those that involve coin. So I think you've got, you've got a series of very novel, interesting questions that um, will, will probably occupy a lot of time in the bankruptcy court down the road. Okay, so let's maybe turn the clock back to more than 14 years ago now. Um, I mentioned you were head of restructuring at Lehman Brothers when it collapsed and were in the middle of his bankruptcy in 2008. Um, how do you, how do these two cases compare in your view? 
Yeah. Well, you know, Lehman, um, it, it, luckily I was younger and had more energy um, to help help deal with Lehman. But I got I got thrust into that about 72 hours before our filing when um, when I was told that the deal that uh, was being negotiated out of court with Barclays was was basically dead. And we had to figure out what we were going to do next. And um, as a consequence, we obviously didn't have a lot of options. And we filed the holding company for Chapter 11. Um, one of the, the our international company ended up in administration in the UK. And then we tried to maintain all the other companies while we figured out what, what we were going to do. And um, the difference between FTX and Lehman is, A, Lehman was a global investment bank with deep connections all across the banking industry um, as a result of loans, derivatives, other kinds of investments, um, and had a, over a trillion notional of, of a derivatives book. Um, and so it was a far-flung enterprise that, that, had, that posed systemic risk to all financial institutions when Lehman went down. And, and that's why the government ended up having to intervene and provide support for you know, Goldman Sachs, AIG, and others in order to make sure that the financial system didn't completely collapse. Um, FTX is, I think Janet Yellen said it at the hearings this week in Congress, I think she said, FTX is the Lehman of the crypto industry. And I think that's apt because um, it really hasn't spread beyond the crypto industry. This is, you know, this is a, you know, crypto blizzard, not a crypto winter. But, um, but I would also say that we have not seen any spillage over from this particular set of problems into the general financial world, right? You're not seeing any banks or any major hedge funds experiencing any dislocate financial dislocation as a result of the FTX filing. Um, so I think there's that. There's also the question, and I'm not asserting that it's fact, that there, there may be fraud here, right? No one knows exactly what the facts are yet. But certainly on its face, it looks like things were done in a manner that might have been misleading to, to certain people or certain customers. And so we'll see how that all plays out. Lehman was not like that. Lehman was very um, a very large, messy transaction, but it was also a, fine, a, a publicly audited company, publicly traded on exchanges. There was a lot of information out there about Lehman Brothers. So I think that this is a much more of a, an opaque situation than we had there. And then finally, you know, people have said to me, well, you know, when Lehman was all said and done, even though the, the claims were trading very low when the case started, at the end of the day, um, there was a 45 cent recovery to unsecured creditors in Lehman. Do you think that's going to happen here? And I said, it's, it's apples and oranges because Lehman had a real asset base, right? We had real estate, we had securities, we had a lot of private equity, we had a lot of different assets that, that were in the in the Lehman estate, we'll call it. Um, and Re Lehman ended up filing at a time when the value of those assets was quite low, which, which was one of the reasons it led to this filing. But those asset values came back over time. And that's what led to the recovery. They didn't get sold right away. They, get, they came back and over time when they finally did get sold or monetized, the values had come up. These assets here, we don't really know what they have. They have some coin, we don't even know the nature of their coin. We know some of it was their own coin. So that may have literally zero value. Um, so I suspect that the total value of this estate is going to be a fraction of what the creditor claims are going to be. Um, that's just my intuition right now. And that, so those, are, I think, are the principal differences between FTX and Lehman. Okay, so, so it, it does sound that one of the things that both cases do have in common, but to an extent for sure, is this idea of contagion. And as you said, uh, FTX's impact at present appears to sort of be more localized and much more localized in the crypto space. Um, a large number of firms have had assets caught up in FTX since its collapse and are now themselves uh, in distress or have even filed for bankruptcy. BlockFi being the most recent and most obvious example of that. Uh, the impact on Voyager, for example, is probably related more to uh, FTX's failed role as a distressed asset purchaser. Uh, and perhaps it's sort of still unclear as to what its ultimate impact on Celsius may be. But it does seem that the entire crypto ecosystem has come under fire 
what in your view does bankruptcy mean for participants in this industry? That's a great question. I think, um, you know, look, the ecosystem is pretty, pretty big in the sense that you've got a lot of different people doing different things. You've got, you know, you have exchanges, you have, you have traders, you have Bitcoin miners, you have people lending to Bitcoin miners, you have machine manufacturers, you know, Bitcoin machine manufacturers, people who sell the rigs and manufacture and sell the rigs. So you, you have a pretty big ecosystem. I think you're seeing um, distress all across the entire entire industry in every segment of it. Um, I think you're going to end up with the strongest of those companies surviving and being like the, you know, the, the, the weak ones will all ultimately go away and the strongest will survive people like Coinbase and, and Galaxy, which appear to have very strong balance sheets uh, and, and much, much tighter um, compliance and other, other regulatory frameworks than, than you've seen at, at a place like FTX, for example. Um, I think that uh, until I think the second problem is that you know the price of Bitcoin is at and the, and the price of, of you know the hash rates are at, are at ten year lows, and so whenever you have any kind of asset class that's in a ten year low, you're going to have distress. Um, and I think we're seeing you know in all of those different areas that I mentioned, I think we're seeing stress, and I think we'll, as a consequence we'll see con, you know consolid, consolidation. There will be people who go out and buy some of these more distressed assets, consolidate them. Undoubtedly, we're going to see more regulation coming down the pike. Uh, I think Janet Yellen made that pretty clear in her hearings to this week that you now the, the federal government's going to start to impose greater regulatory oversight in, in the digital space. So I think those those are all the consequences of, of FTX that, you know, near term and long term. Um. I think you mentioned this in the beginning also, but any sort of anyone following these cases knows we're still very much in this information gathering phase of it. Uh, and we're all familiar with Sam Beckman Fried's uh, recent press tour. Uh, one of the things that he has said is that he cannot explain what happened to billions of dollars that customers of FTX or the exchange sent to bank accounts to his trading firm Alameda. Uh, there was a suggestion that over five billion, perhaps, of FTX customer funds were wired to Alameda bank accounts, but cannot be accounted for. Uh, can you speak a bit about um, the bankruptcy implications if these assertions actually turn out to be true? Yeah, well, let me start by saying I didn't receive any of that five billion, so I definitely, you know, definitely not not on the hook for that. But but you know, on a more serious note, like. We don't know the facts here yet, right? They're really to be determined. Uh, and I expect that, you know, you've already seen the Department of Justice through the U.S. Trustee's Office has asked for an examiner. Um, that may or may not be granted. Certainly some parties are going to do a very sophisticated, detailed examination of what happened here. Um, and so, you know, the first question is like, what, what, where, you know, what the $5 billion, what, what happened to it, right? Where did it go? Um, because we can establish at the end of the day that people were customers or not to customers. We can establish the legal framework for the treatment. But if there aren't any assets to pay all these people, it's going to be problematic. And a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money. Um, I think that um, after that, um, you know, once the $5 billion is, once the facts around the $5 billion is, are known, the, the question will then be, were these people customers and of which company? and you know, if they were customers, as we said, as I said before about the Celsius case, they're going to get, there's going to be one set of treatments for them if the money is there or if the assets are there. And if, if, if it's not treated as customer property, they'll just be general unsecured creditors of the estates. I think by far the most important um, question is where did the money go and what's going to be left after all of this? And, and, uh, and it doesn't feel like based on everything that I've read so far, uh, which is all public, uh, that there are a lot of assets at the moment that people know about that are going to be available to pay back, you know, anything close to $5 billion of, of customer deposits. So finally, uh, we've talked about the Lehman parallels. Um, I think you mentioned, uh, probably many of us do remember the active Lehman claims trading market back then. Uh, and now, a number of Wall Street brokers have expressed an interest in paying the crypto exchange's customers 
probably pennies of the dollars for the bankruptcy rights to uh, the trapped cash and cryptocurrency on the platform. Uh, it will likely, case given how long it will be, it will likely take years before any customers recover their funds and they may receive only pennies of the dollars uh, on the dollar then. Um, so how do you think these firms get comfortable uh, making a bid for claims at this stage, at this very early stage of the chapter 11 cases? Well, you know, there's an old saying on Wall Street that, you know, Wall Street only understands two, two terms, fear and greed. And so the question, the question here is gonna be, which of those are the firms going to be more interested in? Um, right now, I think that the, as you pointed out, the lack of information should make people very fearful uh, and should lead people to not wanna make super aggressive you know, bids for, for these claims until more is known. I suspect as more becomes known and people can start to bookend and model out potential recoveries, then you'll see a lot more claims trading. From what I've heard so far, uh, you know, there's been a few trades in sort of the, it started, I think, at three to three, three to five cents. I've heard it's it moved up to sort of six to eight cents. Um, I don't think there's a lot of trades that have actually occurred yet. Um, I think that in terms of like larger institutions, probably most of them, their managements are not allowing their desks to trade too much of this yet because it's highly speculative. Um, but I think as more information comes out about assets and about liabilities, then I think you're going to see, start to see more trading because it is a very large, very large case in terms of you know amount of claims that is likely to be out in the market. Of course, if many of these people turn out to be retail customers, um, you know, then you're talking about a lot of very small trades, uh, which is more complicated and obviously more difficult for for people to do. Um, so I think if this is one of those stay tuned, stay tuned, you know, we're in what I would call the, you know, the second pitch of the first inning. And um, we've got a long, a long game to be played before, you know, before we know uh, the final score. Well, this, we're just about out of time. Out of time. Sounds like a good place to end it. Um, clearly, we're just at the starting time of what promises to be a long and challenging process ahead with lots more to come. Um, Mark, thank you so much for stopping by today. Thanks for having me. Now, a really great conversation, uh, as always. Uh, I want to stay with the crypto theme here. And uh, no, dear readers and listeners, I should say, uh, we don't have uh, Sam Bankman-Fried uh, to join us. We are probably the only podcast not to do so. Uh, but we do have Nagisa here for a little bit of follow-on. And, and Nagisa, I want to talk Chapter 15 with you here a little bit, or at least I want you to talk to me about it. Um, what is sort of the state of play for FTX uh, down there in the Bahamas? Thanks, Noel. Uh, so this has been, this is potentially a significant dispute at the beginning of these cases. It was probably the first sort of key legal dispute that we had some information on in a case that lacked uh, any information, uh, to say the least, at the beginning. Uh, so it's it's a question of where and how uh, certain FTS access assets will be administered. So it's basically a question of control: who controls parts of the bankruptcy proceeding. Uh, for a bit of history, on November 10th, the Securities Commission of the Bahamas took action to freeze assets uh, of uh, non-debtor, so not a debtor in Delaware, uh, FTX Digital Markets, which is also happened to be the employer of certain current and former executives um, and staff in the Bahamas. Uh, soon after that, provisional liquidators were appointed and a Chapter 15 petition seeking recognition of these provisional liquidation proceedings was filed in the Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of New York. Um, it was that Chapter 15 filing that potentially was viewed as a threat to the authority of FTX's Delaware bankruptcy process that was initiated um, on November 11th. Uh, generally speaking, the concern was that if successful, at least some of U.S. bankruptcy proceedings could move 
could be overviewed and handled by local courts in the Bahamas. Uh, that means that Bahamian liquidators could potentially take charge of managing potentially key FTX assets that is without uh, U.S. court oversights. Um, and why this matters, well, there's sort of kind of multiple answers to this. Uh, uh, first of all, we had statements by Bankman Freed that were in favor of Bahamian jurisdiction taking over the case from the Delaware court. That caused a lot of worry and concern by U.S. professionals. Um, and sort of we saw that in the filing in the very initial days of the case. Um, there were uh, there were allegations that there was hacking and potential removal of assets by the Bahamian government uh, after the Chapter 11 proceeding was filed in Delaware, and that uh, could potentially be a violation of the automatic stay. Uh, but, I mean, I also want to point out that there's potentially, obviously, also kind of not so nefarious reasons to all of this. Uh, we do know that the Bahamas has wanted to create this sort of favorable regulatory environment for crypto companies. Uh, having some control over aspects of this case could solidify that. Uh, and there's also a question of fees, and this sort of applies across the board. This is a likely going to be a very long case uh, that led like a very complex case, obviously that lends itself to substantial fees. And that's sort of, as I said, that works both sides, both when it comes to being liquidators and professionals, as well as U.S. professionals. And both parties have sort of argued that and thrown that out there. Um, as far as sort of what's happening now, uh, the first question, the one that was resolved consensually right before the first day here in, in Delaware, was uh, an agreement to move the Chapter 15 case to Delaware, let the Delaware courts, so not the New York court, decide whether to recognize a Chapter 15 proceeding. Uh, there was an interesting point here where the first hearing took place in New York as DNY, and we saw some clear discomfort from New York courts in ruling on these issues and potentially finding themselves reaching conflicting decisions with Delaware courts. Uh, it's sort of, we, what well, we had advanced, so things has changed a little bit with the BlockFi filing. New York had been the only court where uh, this crypto cases had been filed. Delaware was sort of new to the mix. So those courts certainly had concern there about potentially being in conflict with each other and didn't want to be in the position. So that's resolved. Um, then we come to the Chapter 15 recognition itself, which will happen uh, probably soon, uh, likely, likely this month, uh, certainly sort of in the next few weeks. Um, I, I'd say that, kind of to conclude it, I'd say that it is, it, it is a tough ask at the end of the day to, ha to ask a U.S. court to give up jurisdiction in the case. Um, it, that said, I do want to point out that FTX's connection to the Bahamas in this particular case when it comes to the digital asset, asset exchange uh, are strong. I mean, the, the company, this, uh, the, the exchange, the digital asset exchange was founded in 2019 in Hong Kong. It moved to Bahamas in 2021 uh, following this incorporation there. Uh, for Chapter 15 purposes, we sort of look as to what this foreign main proceeding is, and it's usually one that takes place in the jurisdiction where the debtor has what we call the center of main interest, and is generally presumed to be the debtor's registrar's office. Uh, that presumption can be rebutted um, based on numerous factors, things like the location of the debtor's headquarters, where his managers, employees investors or assets and creditors are and what the law of the jurisdiction that apply is. <laughs> but uh, but here we have a number of factors that sort of work in favor of the Bahamas. That's where the headquarters are. That's where the employee locations were. That's where the, there's arguments that FDX operated from the Bahamas. All that said, that doesn't, that doesn't provide much insight into sort of where the majority of creditors are, which is certainly not the Bahamas, what the relevant law is, which is not Bahamian law and so on and so forth. But there those this competing arguments are there. It could ultimately be resolved consensually by leaving just this particular 
particular company in the Bahamas and the rest handled in Delaware. So that's sort of to be seen in the coming weeks. And, and do you think there will be anything that sort of comes out of this, uh, regardless of whether it, which way it goes in terms of for, against sort of resolving it in the Bahamas? Uh, do you think there's sort of anything to learn from that? Or is this a very FTX specific thing such that, you know, Assuming, you know, I know I know it's a rough assumption to make that maybe another crypto company has to file for bankruptcy. Uh, given the rarity of those things, I don't want to presume anything. But uh, yes, Chapter Fifteen. I mean, it is a, re a recent incorporation to the code. I, only since two thousand and five. So any new law is helpful to sort of to sort of set precedent. Uh, I think, as far as the involvement of the Bahamas and what it means. Uh, for that, I think that could certainly be significant, but all of these inquiries are, are very factual. It's very fact-intensive inquiries. So we're sort of looking exactly where the employees reside, where, where decisions were made, where the headquarters are. So it is a very factual-intensive inquiry. I think in this case, it's also certainly tainted by all these allegations of the Bahamian government. Uh, potentially hacking and stealing maybe assets during uh, <laughs> chapter 11 proceeding itself. So that's sort of, that's certainly a unique factor and I'm not sure it will have, well, I mean, it could have other cases, but it's not a very obvious one. All right, Phil, I want to bring you in here uh, as well uh, and get you back online because I know crypto is sort of a space uh, that you've sort of, I, I mean, I guess we're, we're all sort of involved in it one way or another, but you, you've certainly covered a number of the names as they've uh, sort of fallen into the bankruptcy process. Uh, you know, sort of what are your thoughts about sort of the continued evolution here and, and sort of, you know, what sort of, you know, expectations be? I mean, it doesn't seem like a ton of these are having great recoveries uh, for anybody, at least not that I've seen. Yeah, no, the, the FTX uh, hearing and, you know, just looking through the papers and the presentation and such, it, and, it, you know, this is now the third one, major one that I've been uh, following. You know, first it was Voyager, then Celsius, and now FTX. And, you know, it, it, it just brings home you know, it, it, as you see, you know, once Voyager's further along in the process and you, 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 you know, certain themes come out. And, you know, one of the themes that, you know, strikes me is you have multiple layers of value destruction. You know, one, you invest in a digital asset that arguably, I don't think it's even arguable, it, it has no intrinsic value. All of its value is really from what people, you know, that other people have confidence in it and that that it's, you know, they give it value. Um, and to that extent, it's going to have a price. And, you know, it wasn't criminal to sell tulips in the Dutch bubble. At least I don't think it was. Um, you know, if people wanted to pay ridiculous prices for it, that was something that you were able to do. So there's just the, the, the you know, when it falls back to, you know, in, intrinsic value, when price actually goes down to value, you know, intrinsic value, that's, that's one area of, that's one factor in, 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 that's one layer of loss. Then there's these exchanges that were set up. And this is where, you know, Nagisa and I are focusing our efforts uh, a lot in following these bankruptcies. Um, and we saw a little taste of that on Thursday or, I, I think, no, not Thursday. It was, uh, it might've been uh, Tuesday or Monday. Um, when Judge Glenn was like trying to figure out whose property is it, you know, the, who, who owns the crypto? Is it the estate or Celsius, you know, is it Celsius or is it the customers? And, you know, these exchanges, you give up your keys, you give them your crypto. And, um, you know, even the compliance officer sort of said, yeah, that was a conscious decision of me. Once I gave it up into the exchange, I kind of lost, you know, it, it felt I lost my, you know, property. And, you know, sure enough, you leave, you read the terms of uh, use and, you know, Celsius, as Mark Shapiro discussed, you know, it, the language there seemed to be, um, you know, much more favorable to it being the property of Celsius than the customers relative to FTX. Um, but 
you have the exchanges where they get these assets and then they don't return they they invest that and so you're taking the losses of these exchanges too that you really didn't expect um you know customers think that they're just really having a more convenient way of storing it and perhaps making an income on it but you know they are now getting surprised that you know you have the bookkeeping of like ftx which was pro apparently being done at a bahamian mansion and you know not very well either um and then just recently you had fir tree uh sue grayscale which is a trust that supposedly has bitcoin but apparently it's a trust that you can only get you can only put bitcoin in but you can't get bitcoin out and that's a problem um so uh it's like so, so that, california yes <laughs> precisely um i think i think you're on to something there so you have those there's so there's one you know the, the fact that it's got no intrinsic value you might lose value that for that reason you've you put it on exchange <laughs> well, you start now with the statement it has no intrinsic value so you could lose value <laughs> I, I, I i mean that's the way we have to talk in crypto. <laughs> I guess I guess that's fair enough. Um, and then and then two, you, you provide it to an exchange. You have a balance on your app, but is it really there? And what we're finding out is no. <laughs> and then and then now we're heading into the and now now we're heading into the third layer of value destruction, and that is you're entering my world, which is the restructuring world. And you're going to have to suffer the professional tax as these things go into bankruptcy. There's going to be vast investigation. Whatever assets are in there that will be used to uh, fund these investigations. There's going to be claim resolution. We don't even know what your claims necessarily are. In FTX's case, that seems, you know, apparently a real problem. Um, asset control, asset identification. Um, you know, that's not all of this is uh, investigation and it's not even clear if you're going to be successful at uh, obtaining these apps. And then so you me, uh, finish up, but I do want okay. to kind of like ask maybe a higher level question sure. to both of you in terms of because there's nothing investable here, at least from a creditor standpoint. Right. I mean, so we're mostly talking about these other things. So I'm kind of curious once once you finish here, Phil, if either of you has a view in terms of whether there's lessons here to learn for elsewhere in the bankruptcy sphere where maybe creditors have more exposure. Sure. And just on the restructuring point and the professional tax that, you know, you you also have false starts where like everyone's been proposing a reorganization plan that in reality, all you're going to be handing, you're, you're just going to be providing people back their crypto or, or dollars at the end of the day. Um, and then the, you know, just to put, the, you know, to, to put a number on this, um, I'll just point out that John Ray was the principal officer in Nortel and the professional fees there were $1.9 billion over seven years. So to give you an amount, and then I'll say there's another fourth uh, loss of money, but this is just the time value of money. Initial distributions in the Madoff case were only made three years after it actually went in. So uh, I see little reason here to think FTX would be quicker. However, Voyager and Celsius seem to be much better organized. Um, so perhaps there will be a quicker resolution. But um, so, so those are all, you know, kind of like, you know, as you as you take a step back and like, you know, from a from an from a crypto customer perspective, things are not good. And uh, yeah. in terms of your question, you know, like is there, you know, what, what's the investable asset here? Um, you know, we've seen that uh, trade claims, which is really customer deposits, uh, you know, apparently those trade, but for the most part, it's um, most of the uh, financing that these companies uh, found was really venture capital. And so you've probably yeah. got a lot of equity uh, investments that have been written down to naught. And, and Nikisa, no, any yeah. lessons from this for, for like I, the bigger landscape? Yeah, I do want to answer that because I think that that could potentially be very interesting down the road. And it's something that's perhaps hard to see now when we're such 
the very beginning stages. I think there are questions here, like one of that uh, that lend themselves to potentially a lot of sort of explanations and maybe the ability to shed some light. Things like subcon, for example, substantive consolidation is something that's usually sort of this big scary bankruptcy word that we use as a threat, but we very rarely see in practice. So to have a case like FTX that potentially could lend themselves to that and some of those questions and to see it live and happening, I think it could be uh, very interesting and informative as to what it means in practice. Um, I think also uh, fraudulent transfer and preference and preference claims. I mean, there's a lot of law that came out of Madoff, for example, with respect to those issues that could potentially be the same here. I mean, this will be uh, these issues will be central to this case. It will take a long time for, uh, because it will take a lot of discovery and and. and sort of assessment as to where the funds are and where they go, a lot of forensic work before we even get to the legal questions. But once we get there and if we and if they make it all the way to the courts, I think those questions will be very informative and potentially uh, sort of set precedents and an explanation as to how the courts will deal with them. Um, the same applies to sort of potentially having We've seen examiners already. I don't think that's when I mean, we have one in Celsius. There was just very recently a request in FTX, uh, but sort of the role of a trustee and then if, if that ever gets involved, that's also new. So um, I think these questions are not going to happen right away. I think now it's the next probably years is going to be more of sort of focus on forensic and accounting and all of that. But once we get to legal questions, I think that have the potential to be quite interesting. Yeah, super interesting. Uh, let's- uh, Hold on, one, one other time, point, but, one oh. other point. <laughs> I just- <laughs> Come I on, just, Phil. I'm well, trying to I, move things along. Our listeners are like, enough, enough FTX, I'm done. Just Go quickly, ahead. just quickly, the, the regulators in all of this, you know, you have state regulators, you have the like, you know, the SEC and the CFTC, the national regulators as well. I will give them, you know, one credit and one, you know, black mark. And the the success was this whole landscape is blowing up and every bank is fine. So, you know, it, the contagion is really limited to uh, crypto. Now, on the failure side, all the moms and pops out there who are really getting hurt, it's the retail investor. And, you know, I mean, yeah, some institutionals perhaps, but um, and it's not even really the moms and pops out there. It's mostly probably their millennial and Gen Z children. But, um, you know, it, it, it's uh, the regulators really didn't take care of them. Uh, they let this grow. Um, they argued that, oh, transparency and they pushed for transparency. But, you know, transparency uh, doesn't stop Ponzi schemes and not not that all any of these institutions are Ponzi schemes. I'm not saying that, but it it clearly there, there there's a lot of money loss here, and it, it's a it's it's just a shame. And you know it, it's it's illuminating when you see um, all the regulators show well, up. Well, to be fair though, right? A lot of money's lost, but a lot of money was also gained, right? So I guess it depends on what your point of entry was, right? But if you're talking about an asset with no inherent value, yeah, that went to almost 70,000. If we're talking about Bitcoin, it is now, call it 17,000. Right. Right. I, I mean, it, it's very hard. I, I guess, it, I mean, again, if you bought it at 60, yeah, that's a real big pain trade. If you bought it at 200. Well, and, and, and that's one of the things that we always see with regulators. They're never going to get in the way of people making money. If everyone's smiling, it's it's when all the calls come in, when they're losing it, that, that that's when the regulators, uh, and you know that that's that's what's happening here and you know it's interesting seeing them argue about uh these terms of use agreements and arguing that they're confusing now uh you know after we're on version eight and they're arguing about version four um it, it, it's a little <laughs> bit it's a little bit uh it, it's more than a little bit closing the barn door after you know all the horses are out um, all right. There's there's going to be more to say here, 
we we do have to sort of move on to some of yes. the other topics here because I, I think there's a, enough going on that we want to sort of touch on them. Let's maybe start with Endo. Uh, Nagisa, bring you back into the fold here. Uh, sale process going on there? Yeah, so this is more sort of looking ahead. We've known since August that Endo is seeking to conduct a sale, um, an asset sale to their first lien lenders through a credit bank with a minimum of $6 billion. Uh, there do have uh, creditor issues have come up in the past few weeks are ongoing. Uh, one is uh, a timing issue, the fact uh, that uh, creditors are uh, complaining that they just don't have enough time to respond to this motion and it's just happening all too fast. Uh, apart from timing, however, there's also this competing idea that there could be a plan of reorganization of the superior uh, is a superior alternative to the 363 process. Um, there's the potential for a workable plan by the committee that was unclear as to what this means. Uh, we do know that the committee is in the midst of investigating uh, liens and claims of the first lien lenders, so that's sort of the main focus right now. And I think this whole thing will get more clarity uh, in the coming, so in the year, probably January. And speaking of time and timelines, why don't we stay with you here? Uh, you know, 3M, obviously a lot of interest there in terms of how that process is playing out. Yeah, so we do have some clarity on the timeline there with respect to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals uh, scheduling order that sets a briefing that's set to conclude in the in one queue. Um, we don't have an oral argument scheduled there yet, but uh, we could get them sometime um, in one queue or two queue, which could mean that 3M could get an answer on whether it can stay this personal injury lawsuits through the Chapter 11 filing of the steel club business sometime around the middle of 2023. Uh, it could be later, uh, but that's sort of that could be the earliest that we might see it. Uh, this sort of expedited review, it's another chance for the company to resolve tort claims to Chapter 11. Uh, it's, I think uh, we are also awaiting the J&J Talk Units Chapter 11 uh, decision that's at the Third Circuit now. Likely we'll get that before we get the Seventh Circuit 3M, uh, 3M decision. So that's also uh, likely coming uh, in the year all right, Phil, let's, let's turn to you now and name it, uh, you know, I know is near and dear to you, uh, but we haven't talked about it for a little while. Uh, that being uh, Diamond Sports, uh, you know, I guess uh, sports is on everybody's mind. Obviously, we get a lot of sports going on with uh, between all the football leagues and stuff like that. And I think Aaron Judge just signed a, some ridiculous <laughs> nine years, $360 million or something like that. Uh, so, so talk to me about uh, maybe some less profitable sports, uh, diamond sports. Yeah, diamond sports happens to be in probably the worst niche of uh, the sports media business right now. Um, they, they are, uh, they just announced on Monday that uh, David Preschlack, who was on the five member board of Diamond Sports Group, uh, is the new CEO. Um, he was a lender appointment. Um, to the board and uh this is this is uh, you know we've continued to see i mean that this is a new board that was put in place in and i think may following a march transaction uh the where the lenders are you know getting more influence on you know the future of diamond sports and uh you know and, and throwing that you we've also seen uh articles and news store, news reports that uh, Molus and Lion Tree are uh, working and the company has confirmed that they're working on a deleveraging and liquidity strategy. Um, but we've heard that's more expansive, you know, that there's potentially a sale process. And, you know, I, for one, in, in the latest research that I put out that, you know, I, I completely believe that this board would be receptive if anyone actually expressed an interest in Owning the owning owning the assets here, um, and fundamentally, uh, I think that we are heading towards a comprehensive restructuring in the first quarter. 
There's a big coupon payment of $140 million on Feb 15th. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if we went into the grace period ahead of that. The company has 585 million of, or five, around 580 million dollars of cash at the end of September, and you know to give you an idea of their burdens, they've got annual rights fees of about a billion dollars, uh, production expenses of about 2.7 billion, and annual interest of about 600, a little over 600 million. So that's about 5.3 billion of expenses. And last year they only made 2.8 billion of revenue. So yeah, right. and and so it, it it would not surprise me if we uh, if we saw that. And you know, really, you know, what I would do if I were kind of in the shoes is is really just sort of like talk to the big players in this space. Uh, recall Sinclair bought this from ESPN because they were worried about DOJ. Uh, concentration. The DOJ was, you know, worried about concentration in sports. It, it went. These would have been in ESPN otherwise, which you know I think they spend close to ten billion annually on sports rights. So what you have here is um, this needs to move to uh, a player that really values content. Or you know, interestingly enough, perhaps the leagues will be. You know, instead of collecting two billion, there's 45 teams now collecting about two billion annually from uh, Diamond Sports. Perhaps now they'll be taking back equity or something. But there seems to be a recognition out there that something something significant is going to change. And I think bottom line is there's a lot more to come. So I, I don't yeah, want to I mean, spend too much time on it. I think the only players that have the capacity. Uh, to write those checks, or you know, they've got their own struggles going on right now with different parts of their content empires. But you think about it's, the, it, yeah, the it's Amazons the big and the ones. Apples and stuff like that, right? It's, so, yeah, exactly. Amazon, Apple, WBD, and yeah. you know, all of those right. familiar names. Um, so, so let's turn to talent energy here. I know that's another name that you've got sort of in your hopper uh, that you've been looking to to sort of uh, talk through here. So, so why don't you catch us up on that? Sure. Um, you know, it's plan of reorganization. They, they, they had mediation with the uh, unsecured creditors committee and they reached a settlement. And uh, this will be uh, it looks like confirmation is all set for December 15th. Uh, then they have to seek regulatory approvals. And, um, you know, interestingly enough, in mid-November, they they were they did run a marketing process. No one showed up at the auction, so it was canceled, uh, which, you know, for the unsecured note holders who are going to be writing, you know, a, a big check here over, I think, one and a half billion dollars, um, you know, through the rights offering and through the backstop. Uh, I don't know how comforting that would make me feel if I, I was writing that check and, and, and to pay out secured creditors in front of me and uh, they marketed and no one showed a topping bid, but uh, nevertheless, they're committed to it, and I, I think we'll be seeing a lot more details on that in the beginning of the year. But um, that's actually looking uh, like it's going out. And recall, that's one where there's a there's a ton of secured debt in front of them, and they're paying even some make whole you know make whole settlements. So it's a it was interesting, um, and uh, but. Not a lot, not a lot of uh, conflict, at least. And just at refresh this point. my memory uh, before we turn to wrap here. Is that the one that they that one of the big uh, plans that they had before they went into bankruptcy was to actually start basically supplying energy to Bitcoin miners? Yes, that's it. That's it. Um, <laughs> now, all right. So we've got a theme to today's podcast uh, or this month's podcast, and that would be crypto. So. Uh, let's let's wrap with you, Nagi. So let's pivot to National Cinemedia, uh, which uh, I know we've been sort of covering for the last few months on this call here. Some going on there, and I know, I believe you and Phil also have a, a webinar coming up on uh, that situation as well. Uh, why don't you give us the latest and sort of what we're looking at in terms of that situation? Sure, no. So I'll I'll keep most of this for our webinar on December sixteenth. It's going to be myself, Phil. And our U.S. media analyst, Gita Ragathon, um, who will be covering uh, 
nationalists in the media, Sinha world bankruptcies, and uh, and sort of every all parties involved. Uh, as far as recently, I think the biggest uh, uh, the, the biggest the, the sort of the key issue there in November has been uh, bankruptcy courts. I'd say heavy criticisms uh, of national civil media's attempts to contravene Regal's effort to negotiate this potential ad deal with third parties. Uh, at issue were letters sent to third parties with whom Regal had discussed this possibility of providing advertising services. Uh, the letters uh, the court ruled uh, were in violation of the automatic stay. Uh, it's sort of unclear what that where that leads negotiations. We haven't heard much since. Uh, it may have put them in shaky ground, but also. Uh, Nationals' actions may have also had a chilling effect on Google's talks with third parties, which could uh, which could mean that uh, taking advantage of sort of Paris-Cinderella's Chapter 11 filing to be a better deal with National may sort of uh, be Google's most probable path forward at this point. But we'll we'll know more in the coming week, most likely. And then we'll be talking more about this and all things uh, about this company on the 16th. Woohoo! So two bites of the apple uh, for listeners here. So uh, with that, uh, let me wish everybody a happy holiday. Uh, thanks for joining us once again in December. Uh, we hope uh, everybody stays safe and healthy and uh, hopefully uh, has a successful December and an enjoyable new year. And uh, we'll see everybody back again in January. 